Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. We were amazed and said that it was like the enchantments they tell of in the legend of Amadis, on account of the great towers and the temples and the buildings rising from the water, and all of it built of masonry. And some of our soldiers asked whether the things that we saw were not a dream. That was the conquistador Bernal Diaz, remembering the initial site of the great Aztec city Tenochtitlan on the 8th of November 1519, the date on which the Spanish first saw the great Aztec capital. And Dominic, it's one of the the kind of the most romantic and dramatic moments in the whole world history, isn't it? Are you a, a fan of um, I am. the drama of this great story? Tom, that's exactly the word I was going to use, romantic. I remember having this book as a, I don't know, about a seven or eight-year-old, as a seven or eight-year-old boy. And this, the men with feathered headdresses, bloody knives, human mm-hmm. sacrifice, the sort of Spanish storming in the the Aztecs thinking they were gods, you know, all the sort of stereotypes of the of the Aztec story as we've read them, as we've read about it in Britain, and, and the Aztecs thinking that the the world the end of the world was coming. Was yeah, it, it's the sort of apocalypse. I mean, it's that yeah. apocalypto, isn't it? It's, okay, I imagine this book was probably written by Mel Gibson in a, a sort of <laughs> as a very young man, maybe. Um, well, I'm not sure he knows the difference between the Aztecs and the Mayas, but that's a whole different issue. Well, it it is one of the the, the great stories. But it is also a story that we, perhaps particularly in Europe, tend to see through the eyes of the Spanish. Uh, and of yeah. course, the, the Aztecs are one of the most remarkable, one of the most um, creative civilizations that's ever existed. But it's hard for us, I think, to see them as they saw themselves. And so that's why I'm massively excited that our very first transatlantic guest, our first American guest on the show, um, we have Camilla Townsend, whose, whose book came out last year, Fifth Son, A New History of the Aztecs, was absolutely the best book that I read last year. I read it kind of just before Christmas. Um, and, you know, and I was kind of doing my best books of the, of the year list. And, and honestly, if I'd read it by the time I was doing the list, I would have, it would have been number one across it. And the thing that's brilliant about it is that it gives you a history of the Aztecs through Aztec eyes insofar as, as, as that is possible. So Camilla, thanks so much for coming on. Um, absolutely delighted that you've, uh, you, you've agreed to come and join us and talk to us about the Aztecs. Oh, thank you so much. The honor really is mine. I'm delighted to be here. So, w- Dominic and I gave a, 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 a perhaps um, not entirely accurate account of the Spanish <laughs> conquest there. What, just, just very briefly, I mean, in your book, you cover the whole span of, of Aztec history, but um, th- there were two myths there that I think we, we hit on. One is that um, the, the Aztecs thought that the Spanish were gods, and the other was that they thought that with the Spanish conquest, uh, the, the, the end of the world was happening. And, and you demonstrate pretty conclusively that neither of those were true. Right. You have hit very much on the sort of stereotypical view of their history as it's told not only in Europe, but here in the United States and to some extent, even in Mexico as well. Um, the truth was, uh, I would say, both more mundane and more spectacular. Uh, they were uh, originally a people from what is today the American Southwest. They shared common ancestors with uh, people that are famous here, like the 
Hopi, uh, and they came down over the course of a couple hundred years, a, a little bit like Genghis Khan coming down uh, into China, uh, and gradually these Nahuatl-speaking uh, people, Aztec-language-speaking people, uh, took over the Central Valley of Mexico. Right? Uh, there had been uh, great high civilizations, farming peoples there before, but these guys were conquerors, okay? and they took over the valley. Uh, they had been uh, sort of the rulers par excellence, the most powerful guys in Mexico uh, for about a hundred years when the Spaniards arrived. Okay? Um, and they put up a fight. Uh, there is no evidence that they actually thought Cortez or anyone with him was a god. Okay? Uh, they, there was quite a war. Uh, it was a, a really tough urban combat um, for, uh, well, the, the whole war took a couple of years, but within the city, a, cu a couple of months, okay? um, many died. Okay? Um, the diseases that the Europeans brought with them helped, although they were not the defining factor. Um, and then um, after the, this conquest, uh, the Spaniards continued to rely on the Aztecs. Uh, they ruled through them, in effect. The famous Spanish Empire that we hear so much about and, and its home base in Mexico depended very much on their ability to uh, work with the Aztecs and have the Aztecs, uh, the Aztec leaders help them um, to establish control. So the Aztecs, the, the people that Tom and I know as the Aztecs, but you would call the, the Mexica, they've come from somewhere else. So they've come from what is now the United States, right? So when we talk about them as, in, in, as indigenous, I mean, that's quite mm -hmm. a slippery term because they're migrants, invaders themselves, as the Spanish were. They were migrant invaders, although it was their ancestors. That is, the people that um, that Cortez and his fellows met had been living there then. Uh, they'd yeah. been living on the island where they were for what, 100 years, and they had been in that area for a couple hundred years. Uh, but their ancestors, their immediate ancestors, were migrants from what is today the United States. And those people uh, were migrants from further north. That is, um, it was Asian peoples who came across the Bering Strait. There was a land bridge at the time uh, during the Ice Ages. Um, they came in at least three major waves. Okay. Um, so th there has been some political discussion of that here in the United States. Well, uh, we say these people are indigenous, but in fact, they originally came from Asia. But I think when people have been present for at least 10,000 years longer than, than any Europeans who have ever touched foot on the land, we can say that they are indigenous. And Camilla, the story of how, of, of how the Aztecs and Mexica come to what is now central Mexico, we know this because the descendants of, of the Aztecs wrote this down? I mean... Yes. Well, we know it in three ways. Um, archaeologists look at pottery, etc., styles of, of, um, remnants of their, of their civilization, and they can tell, you know, who, which culture went where by roughly when. Uh, we know it because the linguists help us, people who study historical linguistics. Um, they're the ones who have shown how many waves of migrants came. Okay. And then we mostly know it in, in the details that we know it, uh, because, uh, the Nahuas or the people who spoke Nahuatl, okay, uh, the Aztecs, okay, they, uh, did write down their history. Um, they wrote them down in pictoglyphs before the Europeans arrived. And after the Europeans arrived, uh, they took the Roman alphabet that they had been taught so that they could read the Bible. 
And they went home, these young scholars, young, young students went home and spoke to their uncles and grandfathers and grandmothers and said, please tell me the history or tell me the prayer, tell me the story that you used to tell. Um, and they wrote it, they sounded it out, they transcribed it, they wrote it down using the Roman alphabet, but in their own language. So if we study Nahuatl, and I have studied Nahuatl for more than 20 years now, we can read, uh, these, you know, full-throated expressions, complex stories, poems, even some religious utterings, et cetera. I mean, and I think that's why I I found your book so revelatory, but also so moving. Because if 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 you um, if you study Roman history, basically what you know about the Gauls or the Germans comes from Roman writers, Mm -hmm. and you can match it up perhaps with with archaeology or whatever. But you don't have Gallic accounts of Caesar's conquest. You don't have the Germans saying where they thought they came from. But but kind of with this, suddenly people who've been conquered and who essentially um you know their identity has long been suppressed are being given a voice in your book and it's incredibly moving and powerful to hear them speak you know i think what has grabbed you what you have found compelling is really the same element that that grabbed me or that i found compelling that is um it's almost as if we're parachuting in <laughs> to some remarkable situation that as you say has existed in other times and places but usually is so buried over in the layers of time and writing that that we don't have direct access or direct window to it um but these people uh who had not been sedentary for very long who uh who were farmers but still were also partly hunters, uh, who were still living in in some very ancient ways, uh, um, were there in the 1500s, learned to write and wrote all sorts of things about how, you know, all, all sorts of stories that we now can can read and, and hence listen to uh, in a way that, as you say, we can't do for the Gauls or or even for the ancient Britons. Uh, it's really quite remarkable, uh, the, sort of the, the, the clash of difference that one is able to see. Um, and yet the commonalities, too, uh, yeah. between people who have been sedentary for millennia yeah. and those who haven't. So it, it's, it's fascinating, yes. Camilla, before we come back to the conquest and their reactions to the conquest, I just wanted to ask a question because we've had tons of questions from listeners about their own sense of their past. So they've made this journey and they've come to the Central Valley in Mexico. And one of our listeners, Joshua Terry, has asked how much are they aware of preceding cultures like the Olmec or the Maya? A list called Pharaoh Man has asked about the Toltecs. So how how much do they have a sense of themselves as the, how much are they a break and how much are they the heirs to previous sort of Mesoamerican civilizations? The Aztecs are fascinating because they see themselves both as chichimeca, meaning sort of savage people, wild people, people with bows and arrows, tough guys, okay, uh, who came down from the north, but also the heirs of the people who have been living as uh, sort of high culture, civilized farmers in central Mexico for 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 centuries, uh, and that is because they intermarried with them. Uh, these were mostly male, or or even in some cases all male groups that were on the move rapidly, making war, moving to the south, okay? um, and every where they went, they intermarried with and became acculturated with the people that where, where they were arriving, who lived where they were arriving. Um, so they felt themselves to be the heirs of both. And in their writings, you see them take great pride uh, in being Toltecs, artists, people of the valley, and also Chichimecs, you know, savage warriors. Okay? Uh, they like both halves of themselves. So is it a bit like um, Anglo-Saxons or Franks going to Rome and feeling both they are barbarians, but they are also the heirs of this remarkable city. I do think so. I think that's a very good analogy, right, and feeling truly proud of both sides. Okay. Be- because the um, 
the Aztec kings would would go on pilgrimage, wouldn't they, to Teotihuacan, which is this a, a kind of. I mean, it was built the same time as ancient Rome, isn't it? It's first first millennium R- AD. I mean, this right, kind the, of astonishing pyramids and and then abandoned for mysterious reasons. The most remarkable preceding culture was definitely Teotihuacan, which is actually a Nahuatl or Aztec word, sort of place where where gods come into being. In effect, God, so, um, such a and, great name. <laughs> yes, right, and we still know it by the Aztec uh, word because we don't know what the people, we don't know what language the people who actually lived there even spoke. Uh, wow, it, it, we don't right, even know they, they. We can't that's be amazing. sure. It may have been a related language. That is, they too may have spoken a language that had come from what is now the American Southwest, but we can't be certain. Um, and so the, the Aztecs clearly were very much aware of this place. It had fallen into decline mysteriously, as as Tom has said, before they arrived. But the archaeological remains were still so large and so impressive okay, uh, that it was uh, as uh, almost a tourist site, if you can use that word anachronistically. That I guess pilgrimage. Your word is better, Tom. Pil- they would make pilgrimages to it's go holy. And see I it. guess it's kind of holy, isn't it? It's, yes. It, it, oh, absolutely. It kind was, of ghost uh, haunted, but they and they placed their own origin myth right there. That is, they said this this is where. It all began. Okay, um, they also knew that they came as humans down from the north. Those real stories, real histories, were still present in their minds. But when they told the story of the beginning of this fifth age, the, the fifth sun, my book title is that the fifth sun. They feel, felt that we were living under the fifth sun, and they felt that that sun had been born at this incredibly miraculous place in the in the heart of the Valley of Mexico. And what do the guys? What do the people who live around about think of them? Do they think of them as intruders, as, as, as bullies, as, as what? You know, it's complicated. On one level, yes, they were, the Aztecs were intruders and bullies. And, uh, you know, they're, they're people, the indigenous people of Mexico are famous for having allied with Cortez uh, when he arrived. Okay. On the other hand, the Aztecs were uh, very good at, um, sort of working with the people that they were conquering and intermixing with. Uh, and they intermarried with the royal houses, the noble lineages of many different surrounding communities. So the people in the very heart of the Central Valley, the, who lived around the Great Lake. The Aztecs lived on an island in the middle of this Great Lake. Many of them felt that they were part and parcel of a sort of a state, we might say, of a, of a great government. And many of them had voices in that, in the council. Um, so it really isn't true that all indigenous people all around hated the Aztecs. But the further away you got, the more conquered people felt. Um, and there's no question that some of them were only too happy to ally with the Spaniards. Mm-hmm. Could you mentioned about the the kind of the the myth of how what the fifth age begins? So could we've got we've got a question from um, from EKG. What does their cosmos cosmos look like? How do they think of the sun, moon, and stars? But also broadening that out. Um, I mean, you need to kind of understand how they un- how they see the cosmos, I guess, to understand their civilization. So what, what is the myth that, it, that, that, that they identify with this kind of great abandoned city? What, what is it that happens there? They felt that their direct ancestor, uh, was a guy named uh, Nanahuatzin, um, and that the, the fourth age, the fourth sun had imploded dis- rather disastrously, um, and people and all beings, divine human animals were, those few that survived were living in utter darkness. Um, and the gods came and said, um, we need 
a, a brave and great being to jump into a fire. And from that will emerge a new sun. From that courage will, the, the fire will take and a new sun will emerge. Okay. Um, and a, a sort of a, a guy with a lot of braggadocio, a guy with a lot of uh, self-love stepped forward and said, I will do it. Okay. Um, and the gods said, okay, um, is there anybody else? I mean, nobody else wanted to volunteer for such a terrible task. Uh, but eventually, as one of the gods said, well, we, we need backup. So they chose Nana Huatzin, a, a rather humble guy who didn't want to do it. Uh, he didn't want to die, but he thought to himself, well, the gods have been good to me. After all, I've survived, you know, horrible times. Here I am. I, I need to respond to the call. I need to do what needs doing. So he agreed. Uh, and they gave a great costume to the, to the vainglorious guy. And they gave just a little paper crown to the, the, the understudy that they had hand picked. Okay. Well, then, of course, as you might imagine, when the time came, the great hero could not find it in himself to jump into the fire and burn himself to death. He tried, he tried, he couldn't do it. So the gods turned and stared at, at Nanahuatzin, the Aztec's ancestor, and he didn't want to do it. But he closed his eyes and did what he had to do. He was brave. And of course, from that, you know, he, he's immolated, but the sun is born and, and, the, and the people live forever after. So that, that really is quite emblematic of the way that they thought about themselves. That is, they, they thought of themselves as rather humble folk who had lived through desperate times and, and found the courage to do what needed to be done. They were the last um, arrivals, actually, of all those streams of people who came down from the what will later be the United States. They were the last to arrive, almost like the last group of immigrants to arrive in a crowded area. Um, and so they uh, saw themselves as having been through tough times, having had to be the scrappy guys. And they, and they had survived. They were proud of that. And they, they create this incredible city. Um, I mean, it, I, I read the, the Spanish account, your, your one. Um, a gloriously beautiful city filled with citizens who had the leisure time and energy to write poetry, create aromatic chocolate drinks, and sometimes debate morality. They grew in power. They had started on that island because nobody else wanted it. It was marshy ground. It's, you couldn't plant corn and beans. Um, but they, they coaxed some, some crops from, from, from that island, from the earth. And then they took part in wars. Uh, they were very clever, very strategic about the alliances that they formed. Uh, very good about not allowing different branches of the family, of the royal family born of different women, different wives to, to, to start fighting with each other. Um, and so little by little, uh, they really, they took over the whole valley. It, it helped, actually, it turned out that they were on an island because they could set up a big marketplace there and through canoe traffic could tie together villages um, scattered all around the edge. It's a bit comparable to ancient Mediterranean history. You know, we all know that the Mediterranean helped um, merchant trade grow and, and or, helped... Or Venice, I guess. I mean, the yes, Spanish do compare it to exactly. Venice, don't they? Right. And so when you, when you can reach more territory when you're on the edge of, a, of some sort of a sea. Um, so they, with their central location and then their their, their clever uh, politicking rose to be extremely powerful. And like other powerful, rich civilizations, they, they started to do both great and terrible things. You know, they, they wrote poetry, they invented hot chocolate, um, but they also beat up little people around the edges of their empire and brought uh, losers in these wars uh, home for sacrifice. If you've invented hot chocolate, you can get away with it. <laughs> I suppose that is indeed the case. Um, can I ask a question about the city? So if, if, I mean, we obviously must have a sense from the, from the Spanish accounts, but if we looked at Tenochtitlan and we, what would we, what would we see or what would we hear or smell or what would be the most striking things, do you think? Well, from 
from the center, if you're looking down or looking at the city from across the water, uh, from the shore of the, of the mainland, um, you would see two great temples, pyramids rising in the center, and they would have been painted white, uh, like with lime, like whitewash, um, and then covered with, uh, beautiful woven banderas, flags, tapestries, okay? Um, and then in some places painted bright colors as well. The neighborhoods uh, were divided very clearly all around the this temple uh, precinct, and, and the temple precinct is also where the royals lived. But around it, there were very clearly marked neighborhoods that were actually descended from clan or kin-based groups that had migrated there. They they had remained aware of a certain lineage, um, and they each had their own temples, and these were they were organized very highly organized so that tribute or tax was collected in a certain way and each group uh, worked on cleaning the main temples or cleaning the aqueducts uh, or the lake shore and building the docks in different months of the year. Uh, very centralized uh, government, if you will. Um, and then uh, you would have each household would have, it would be built, each house built of adobe um, and around a square courtyard, there would be multiple buildings. And then some of them had second floors, especially so that they could grow garden so that you would walk down these very orderly streets. Um, remember, this had all been built within the past century. So it really was very orderly. It didn't grow organically and sort of uh, in a disorderly way, the way ancient European cities did. They had planned this on the island. So you walked down these orderly streets, seeing two-story adobe buildings um, with beautiful flowers, um, uh, sort of cascading over the edges. And they were already in the habit of keeping songbirds. Uh, today, Mexico and Central America are famous for the, you know, the most ordinary of households keep songbirds. Uh, but that had already started at that time. Montezuma likewise had a sort of a, a zoo and an, and an aviary, um, where different, uh, creatures from the territories were collected so that he could show off. Yeah. And he, and he kept people who are kind of physically deformed. Yes, we don't know to what extent, but it is true that in these uh, gardens or sort of public, I shouldn't call them public gardens because they weren't, uh, we don't know that they were necessarily open to the to tourists, so to speak. Okay? But in these royal gardens, there is evidence that some people were kept against their will uh, because they had some remarkable feature, perhaps a dwarf, something like this, but so we don't know much about it. Kind of thing. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Um, I don't want to exaggerate that too much though, because we don't know the extent of it but but this this stupefying city that i i think i read it was five times the size of london under henry the eighth that's is that is that not true is that another of the myths that turns out to be a myth now that is one that was spread by otherwise reputable historians in the past few decades but <laughs> recently an archaeologist this was based on numbers that were pure guesswork um that the spaniards had put together and then the demographers put together uh, but recently an archaeologist did the math and realized that, you know this island they were living on was five square miles we were imputing a density of population that rivals that of manhattan today which <laughs> okay. is patently ridiculous <laughs> well, right right okay. Um, however, it was very big. Uh, we do think there were probably 50,000 people on the island. And if you count all the people in the Central Valley who considered themselves sort of part of this uh, yes. or, or connected <laughs> to that city, we might approach sizes like they have talked about. Okay. See, this is what I wanted you on, because I've got so many kind of garbled <laughs> facts that I want you to... We all essentially... do, and historians have helped with that, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> Tom, I think, I think we should get to the, get into the human sacrifice, because that is... I think we should do that after the break. Okay, fair, fair enough. Don't you? Fair I enough. mean, no, no, fair enough. B b because, of course, yes, I mean... 
we we I would say about that's what, that's third what of really the questions we've been asked are about yeah. about the sacrifice, okay. and I know that that um, I, obviously incredibly important to emphasise the beauty, the sophistication of of the civilization, but unfortunately. This is what people do want to right. know about. No, and we need to talk about both, right? We'd be in denial if we didn't talk about so, sacrifice. So um, let's go and have a, a quick break. Go and make yourself a cup of chocolate. Um, and then when we come back, we will talk human sacrifice. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Um, I've had a relaxing cup of hot chocolate. Tom Holland has uh, been off to conduct a human sacrifice, as I believe is normal <laughs> behaviour in Brixton. And uh, Camilla Townsend probably hasn't conducted a human sacrifice, but is going to talk to us about human sacrifice, which obviously is the one thing that all, certainly all British readers associate with the Aztecs. So, Camilla, we've had tons of questions. So here's a good one to, to kick off with. It's Stefan Jensen, and he says... Human sacrifice aside, as if you can put it aside, how different from us were the Aztecs really? Now, the interesting thing about that is that human sacrifice is often the thing that people have used to show that the Aztecs were different, that they were lesser or that they were some sinister or, or whatever. So so what's the truth? I mean, are they these sort of bloodthirsty characters with this depraved practice or are they just like us? I would argue strongly that at heart these people were just like us. Now, it is true, human sacrifice was a part of their culture. Um, and that must be acknowledged. In, in recent decades, many of us historians have uh, tried to not deny the fact of that, but avoid talking about it, because we've been uh, focused on trying to draw attention to other aspects of these people and of their culture. Uh, but it must be addressed. It was real. The problem is, that we, in the public, uh, we have in general focused only on that aspect of, of the Aztec culture and thus have distorted it. At heart, at the center of their religion was a notion common to many human cultures. That is that humans owe the gods a great deal. You ought to thank the gods, show your gratitude, give sacrifice to them. It's, it would be, we'd be hard pressed to find a religion that didn't have some element of that. And the greatest sacrifice was considered to be human life, especially the, the, the life of a, of a beautiful, strong, young warrior. Um, again, the idea of, of, a, of a young man, a young person giving up his life uh, for his people, for the greater good, this is very common across human civilization. And which originates well, from that myth that you were telling us about. Yes, or that, or that myth originates from the belief or the belief from the yeah. myth, but they're tightly tied together, right? So what... What happened, and I think this, well, scholars, archaeologists believe this happened actually in many parts of the world in ancient times, it's just that we don't have a clear view of it now, was that people gradually began to prefer to sacrifice a prisoner of war, someone taken, you know, some an enemy that had been taken, instead of one of their own children, right? I mean, that that is r rather normal. Okay, we maintain the belief that we must give the gods a great gift, but it doesn't have to be my Mary Beth, right? Well, it, uh, we'll, it'll be these people who attacked us and we, we defeated, okay? And that went on, again, it's thought that this happened in all ancient or most ancient civilizations. Uh, there are, there are hints about that all across the globe. We know that it went on across the new world. That, that is that almost all Native Americans sa ritually sacrificed an occasional prisoner of war. Uh, young women and children were almost always adopted if they were taken in war, but young warriors or chiefs uh, faced, faced the knife or faced the, the burning. 
And it was done with all great honor. If, if a guy died without screaming, he, he was given uh, the, the highest honor. Uh, so it wasn't intended necessarily to denigrate the enemy. It was just, it was part of war and it, was, it had to do with honoring the gods. Well, it is true that that custom that sort of in full context is tragically normal for human beings took on a new angle um, under the Aztecs. They were the last migrants to arrive in the valley, as I've mentioned, and they fought for their position. And towards the end of that century, they had become so powerful that they really needed um, to try to maintain power over a far-flung empire. And this was a world without machine guns, right? They didn't have weaponry that was different, profoundly different from their neighbors or their enemies. So they really needed to, to sort of dig in and find ways to terrorize people. Um, and they began to commit human sacrifice on a scale that had never been done before by them and their people. I don't know about other regions in the world. Um, and in fact, in one of the, 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 the annals that I have read, they actually talk about this, that they sometimes liked to go this, at the very end of their reign when this power was peaking and, and their paranoia, one could argue, was peaking. They would go and take young people from the area they were trying to conquer, bring them to the city, have them watch these horrible sacrifices in which dozens of people were killed, not just one, and then let, send them home, let them go. Uh, and, and they explicitly said this was with the idea of having them go home and tell their people, we better join this empire while we can and not fight them because we don't want our young people to have to be sacrificed like that. So it was purposeful. Uh, it is. It does. It does not seem to me that it, that this happened because all the Aztecs truly believed that if they didn't sacrifice thousands of people in the course of a year, the gods would, you know, be angry and the sun would disappear. That sort of stereotype. Um, but that there's a kernel of that in their religion. But then the reality was political, as it so often is. I mean, we can look at the government of my own beloved country. Right? It's, horrible <laughs> things were done in the 1970s and 80s in the name by, by my government in our name to maintain power in Latin America. So I think it, it, it isn't so far. It isn't much of a stretch to say that in many ways they are or were very much like we are now. Okay. Can, can I, I? I've got a whole load of. Um things that I thought that I knew about about the Aztecs and their gods. And, and I'm fairly sure that, that I just want to basically stress test them. So tell me <laughs> if these are right or wrong. Did, did, did the Aztecs think that uh, warriors who were, were sacrificed and women who died in childbirth turned into hummingbirds? Yes and no. Oh. They did think so. Um, like ancient Greece, like the classical world, there was some division, some debate about what happened after you died. It wasn't uh, universally agreed upon. You know, I think about some people in the ancient world believed in the sort of the, the Orpheus cult and others did not. Okay. So likewise, in, uh, in ancient Mexico, different areas had somewhat different views of this. But in general, life was the golden period and death, in death, you were a shade, a shadow who would soon be forgotten and then no longer exist. Except if you died uh, as a warrior or as a sacrifice victim in war or a woman who died in childbirth, then you fed the gods and especially the sun. Uh, you lived for, it's debatable, probably four more years um, in a golden world where you were feeding the sun. And symbolically, metaphorically, you did this as a bird or a butterfly. That's uh, beautiful. But, but it's not... <laughs> We don't think that they thought, oh, look at that 
hummingbird, hummingbird okay. it's probably Uncle Joe, right? I mean, yeah. it wasn't a sort of literal thing like that, but a more beautiful and metaphor. But there's a kind of poetry there that's Oh, that's, absolutely. That's absolutely. Okay. Well, that's, yes, yes, yes. Okay, yes. so from hummingbirds to something slightly bloodier, is it true that Aztec priests were in the habit of stabbing their penises with sharp thorns? <laughs> The, yes. the, the listeners want to know this. I mean, there's Tom, no you, to... you, you told me you were going to. You, I mean, Tom has been saying he's going to ask this for weeks, <laughs> so it's clearly playing on his mind. God knows, Camilla, so, well, what's going okay, on in his subconscious. Yes. I, I think I read that when I was about eight, and it's haunted me ever since. <laughs> it was. It's very true. It's in the histories. It's in the poems, and in fact, that was probably well. It was more common than human sacrifice. That is one thing okay. that all young men did growing up in order to become tough was take part in. in Ritual ceremonies in which you bled yourself, you bled your penis a little bit. Um, the idea was not to do lasting damage, but just to show how <laughs> tough you were <laughs> and to thank the gods. Just right? to show how tough you are, basically. It's a resilience. Yes, test. and thank the gods. I mean, you're, again, your blood is feeding the earth and hence the divinity. But I would absolutely argue that you're showing how strong you are, how impressive you are. Right? I think it's something we should bring in on the show, Tom. Teenage kicks all through the night. Um, okay. <laughs> The most terrifying God. Is he the most terrifying God? So there was a fabulous exhibition um, at the Royal Academy here in London about 20 years ago. And there was a statue of a, a God that looked to be wearing bubble wrap. And you'll know immediately <laughs> who I'm talking about. And I thought, oh, how ch- it looks like a children's character. And then I read the sign and said, this is uh, a flayed skin turned inside out. And this is the fat of the inside the skin that has formed little bubbles. And this God is Chippy Totec. Um, the, our Lord, the flayed one, and the priests went around wearing flayed skins. Is that true? Yes. And in fact, at first, you know, early on in their culture, there would have been some element of this. That is, a priest would have done something like that. The idea of taking on the persona of the sacrifice victim, uh, which was a very holy and revered persona, okay, would have been part of it. By the end, uh, again, when they were using human sacrifice uh, in a in a vast power play, there was a whole cohort of professional priests. I mean, they were part of the ones pushing this. It's a bit like military generals pushing a particular war. Uh, it was good for their sort of professional identity for there to be more of this human sacrifice. Um, and clearly some of them, well, they were not the kind of guy you'd want to bring home for dinner. Okay? The they must people have who stunk. Were, no, I, I was mean, about to say, not if they're wearing someone else's skin. I mean, <laughs> right, okay. Now, again, keep in mind that at the same time as this was going on, Aztec poets, some of them were singing about the tragic nature of war and the tragic, the tragedy of, of life ending and the great beauty of, li- so, all Aztecs were not the same. I mean, that sounds silly, but my point is some of these priests were real dastardly dudes but they were all aztecs weren't so like can, that dominic can i just read denver brito's question because because he he he's he like he says do we know of sentiment against sacrifice um, among he, the aztecs that's exactly yes. what i was going to ask oh sorry yes. dominic is there is there a debate is there a debate within as do we have evidence textual evidence of, a, of an actual debate within us we do i guess i wouldn't go so far as to say that there was any sort of formalized debate but just that within these songs that are a bit different from the histories. The songs are the poems, but they were sung aloud. Um, there's clearly, there are multiple different and competing threads. Some of them celebrate war, but actually very few. That's rather rare in the songs. A more dominant thread would be um, the tragic nature of violence. Um, and because life 
life was heaven. This life on earth was the best that there was. They they really felt strongly, even for the warriors who get to be, you know, humming, live as hummingbirds for four years. Life was what they continuously spoke with reverence and joy about. Life was what you were supposed to be, be the best human that you can, because this is it, folks. Okay, um, And there, there's no question that part of that sort of dialogue or discourse was uh, just a love of life, a joy in life. Um, all sorts of metaphors were used comparing to flowers, etc. Um, so the idea that it was good to have to kill the enemy, I don't think I've ever come across that. You do find it's good that we won. Um, but in terms of all the death and human sacrifice, the songs talk about it as a sad thing. I would argue that most likely these the priests who were by now living on their own in in these temple pyramids, um, they probably were not singing those songs. Okay? Um, they they had a I think a different view, um, and I say that based on their actions. Uh, we we don't have their words. Okay, so so um, Camilla, one one last question about gods, and I, in some ways, I mean, this is the detail that has haunted me most of all: uh, the god Tlaloc, who is the, the god of the rain, and is it true that um, children were particularly sacrificed to him and that if they cried, then the sacrifice was was more efficacious? It is true. That is, that the, the myth is that Aztecs ran around killing a lot of women and children. It was it, They did not. It was almost always um, prisoners of war, male prisoners of war, young warriors. However, there were certain ceremonies. Um, I mean, there were, there was festival days, religious days went throughout the calendar. And there was, uh, there were certain ones where women died. And there was this one, the ceremony uh, dedicated to Tlaloc, uh, where a handful of children were sacrificed. And there is debate about who these children were. Uh, some scholars have, have argued that they were, you know, their own children. Um, however, uh, there's no evidence, there's no textual evidence of that. And in fact, archaeologists have found that these were always malnourished children. So I would argue strongly that these were undoubtedly also uh, prisoners of war um, from impoverished areas. Okay, um, And yes, the idea of crying was very, it was of ceremonial importance in, in many in many ceremonies, many festivals, and, in, and even on political occasions, if a chief cried uh, as he uttered a certain statement, that meant he would not break his word. For so, public tears were important. Um, and yes, um, when the children cried, it was considered a good sign. There is some evidence that sometimes uh, the children were drugged so that they didn't suffer. But given that there was some hope that the children would cry, I suspect not enough. Um, so that they could, you know, remain in ignorance of what was to happen. They had all, I mean, this was not just the Aztecs, throughout Mexico, and in fact, again, throughout the Americas, prisoners of war being put to death was uh, was a known phenomenon to everyone. So there's no question that when these children, women, or warriors were taken uh, in war, they they knew what might be their fate. So on that question of how much the um, the Aztecs were familiar with the, the world beyond them, I mean, obviously they didn't; they, they had no idea that uh, that Europe existed. Um, but a question from uh, Harold Wilson: How much did the Aztecs know about the Inca and the wider world in general? So were there were there links with the Inca Empire? This was a world that had only been sedentary, that had only been farming um, for a, a couple of millennia. So uh, they were still. 
sort of roughly where the ancient Sumerians, where the Mesopotamians were in terms of their uh, technological development. So they had canoes, for example, but they hadn't turned those canoes into sailing vessels. They had some uh, rather simple maps, but they didn't have compasses, etc. So no, they did not have direct knowledge of you know vast territories. Their own empire extended as far as today's El Salvador, um, and it also went up the coast, sort of in the direction of San Diego, although never got that far. Okay. Um, and th- because they went far in their in their military exploits, through long distance trade networks, they had heard of other kingdoms. So they were aware that there were other kingdoms out there far, far away. Right. But they couldn't have told you, yes, uh, and the leading one's name is, uh, are, are the Incas, yeah. and they did this and that. Okay. But, but like the Romans and the Chinese, perhaps. Exactly. Kind of- I think that's a very good comparison. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, right. Camilla, you raise technology, and I think this is a, a massively fascinating topic. It's one that tons of our listeners are asked about. And in your book, I mean, I'm paraphrasing your book, so maybe you should be doing it, but you have this incredibly interesting argument about it's basically a sort of clash of two time zones. If the Spanish uh, from the 16th century and the, and the Aztecs who are basically thousands of years behind, as it were, because they haven't been sedentary for as long. So my question, I guess, is a very, very basic one. Why? Why have people in the Americas not been sedentary farmers at the same as time long, as the right. Sumerians or the, or, you know, Babylonians or whatever? Right. It's an excellent question. And in fact, it's one that we haven't had an answer to until quite recently, because until the, the mid nineties, uh, radiocarbon dating techniques weren't, they weren't good enough. They weren't fine tuned enough to tell us when which plant or which crop got to which point. We just knew, for example, in the old world that wheat seemed to be everywhere for the past few thousand years. But, you know, in human history, that doesn't really tell us much. So starting in the nineties, uh, scholars start, were able to plot where wheat and peas got when, when people exactly began to farm corn and beans in the new world, etc. Well, it turns out, and in retrospect, this makes perfect sense. It turns out people became full-time farmers where there was a constellation of protein-rich crops that were suitable for that. You don't give up hunting unless you have a good protein-rich substitute. Um, and in the Fertile Crescent uh, that you are also familiar with, you had uh, legumes, peas, and wheat, and the wild forms were very protein rich. Uh, those, that, that constellation of crops rapidly spread east and west and Europe and China added other crops and, um, and became farmers too. Well, in the new world, it took a lot longer. Uh, the ancient ancestor of corn, Teosinte, was much tinier and less protein rich. So, uh, people everywhere were sort of flirting with farming, planting their famous, their, their favorite plants and then coming back next year to see if, if more of the cranberries or the wild corn had grown. But meanwhile, they were relying more on hunting. So they flirted with farming and over several millennia, they did turn the teeny tiny teosinte into a, an ear of corn. And then at some point they realized, and this took more time, that if you ate corn on the same day as you ate beans, you had enough protein to live. You didn't have to hunt down a deer. Uh, um, it's like eating a hamburger if you have corn and beans together, but not separately. Wheat and peas on their own are good enough. So it took about 5,000 more years in the new world than in the old, uh, not for people to start flirting with farming, as I call it, but for people to really settle down and become full-time farmers. And that didn't make them stupid. 
Not at all. I mean, the, the Aztecs I study, the writings that I read, these are the works of some rather brilliant men, especially some of the poems. Um, uh, and I would argue that women were just as smart, but that, that's another question. But um, it, indeed, it's just that they had not been sedentary for nearly as long. So they had not had the, the same number of millennia uh, to invent all the things that come with sedentary life. You can't have a blacksmith shop or uh, develop a writing system and a tribute system if you're on the move every day. Uh, you can only move with what you have on your back, keep on going, hunt the next deer or the next rabbit. So it makes sense. Do you need all that for wheels? Because obviously that's one thing that people yes. always ask about. Where are the wheels? There's a great example. It's not just metallurgy and ships, but the, the wheel. And in fact, um, the Incas, for instance, um, also latecomers to farming like the, like the Mesoamericans, um, they had begun to develop a wheel. They had it in certain toys and ritual objects. Obviously, it would not have taken much longer, I would guess another generation or two, for them to start wheeling carts around. Okay. I, we're not going to go into the detail of the, of the Spanish conquest, because I, th- I, Dominic, I think we should save that for another we should. episode. I mean, it's, we should. It, it, it's so, s- such an astonishing story. But the, on that topic, there is a question here from Costas Cafaris. If the Aztecs had had another couple of centuries to advance technologically and administratively, might they have been able to hold the Spaniards off? And a question from Victoria Adams, could there have been a more peaceful, less destructive outcome for the Aztecs? Or did disease mean that first contact with the Spaniards was going to end very badly for them? So I I guess the question is, was there any way in which once the Spanish had reached Mexico, that the Aztec empire could have survived? I don't think so. Uh, you can't, no matter how brilliant you are, how, I mean, I, I guess that word means something different to me than it does to you, but no, no matter how intelligent and savvy you are, um, you can't make up on your own for a 5,000 year technological differential. I do think that had things gone a bit differently in certain specific regards, they could have held the Spaniards off for a bit longer. Uh, you, you might think of Japan holding the West off for, for a bit longer, so to speak. Uh, this can happen with the right rulership and with some bad luck on the side of the Europeans. Uh, but that's a lot different from arguing that the Aztec as a state, as a nation could have survived indefinitely. I don't see that happening. Um, as for having done, having accomplished the whole shift, the whole conquest or the whole set of events more peacefully, I suppose it might have been possible. Uh, one of the indigenous women who was pressed into translating for uh, Cortez uh, Malinche or Doña Marina, she seems to have worked quite hard to save indigenous lives by telling people, work with these guys, be their partner <laughs> rather than their enemy, and you can ha- come out ahead. And some of the indigenous villages who took that path did come out ahead of others. Um, so perhaps the whole thing could have been done with less bloodshed. But as your listener has alluded to, uh, microbes were part of the European arsenal. Because of long-distance yeah. trade and farming, there were far more diseases endemic in, in Europe and, and Asia than there were in the New World, where people had not been living with their animals for millennia. Um, so I... I I think that given the reality, the brutal realities of the epidemics, uh, people were going to suffer, uh, even if peace talks had prevented some of the wars. But Camilla, can I ask a question? Some historians, as far as I understand it, argue that um, the real, I mean, the pandemics aside, which obviously the the Spanish themselves couldn't really do much about, um, that the really sort of tough times for the indigenous people actually came much later than we think. So... In other words, after independence from Spain in the 19th century, that was when things got really rough for the kind of native people of Mexico, rather than, as we commonly imagine, 
you know, in the aftermath of the conquest. Is that right? Or is that, am I misremembering or exaggerating? No, you're remembering quite rightly. And in, in some ways, I would argue that is quite right. There's no question that the generation or two after conquest was very difficult for the indigenous people. Uh, The population dropped because of diseases. They had to accustom themselves to a whole new set of rulers who had no real respect for them. The Aztecs did have respect for the people that they were conquering. Um, So there's no question that we watch sort of precipitous drop or level in knowledge of their ancient cultures, precipitous drop in population, they suffered in the 16th century. It is true, however, that in order to make their empire go round, the Spaniards very cleverly developed a system whereby they they called it the dos, dos repúblicas, the two republics. They would rule the Spanish people of Spanish descent in one way and the people of indigenous descent in, in another way. And as long as the indigenous people complied on a certain level, they could even rule themselves, that they could even have an indigenous chiefs continue to rule them. Um, and so there was a sort of sense of parallel worlds. There were whole sections of the university devoted to having scholars learn indigenous languages. Why? So that people... Native people could come to court and speak in their own language, for instance. Okay. Uh, so one could argue that, that a sort of stasis was reached, a, a mutual accommodation over the colonial era that broke completely when they broke from Spain, uh, that in the independence era, all bets were off. Uh, the new Republican government said, all citizens are equal. There will be no special allowances made for Indians, no indigenous languages in court. You each have the right to have your own land, for example. So show us your title. Well, of course, the indigenous people just had tradition. They didn't have their title. So, so yes, um, the, the, the average breadbasket, so to speak, of the typical native descended family in Mexico, it, it, it really declined dramatically over the, over the 1800s. And hence they ended up uh, being part of the great Mexican revolution of the 19 teens. Okay. Yeah, Zapata and stuff. Right, absolutely. With Zapata and Pancho Villa, exactly. So you're not wrong. But I, I wouldn't want to say that the conquest of the 16th century was a cakewalk. Th- right. That had its own challenges, right? And, and, okay. and we, we talked about this right at the beginning with the kind of the, 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 the myths that are commonly believed. And the assumption is that the Aztecs thought that the, the world was ending. And, and you very powerfully and movingly demonstrate that that was not the case because they, they didn't have time for that kind of myth-making. Right. They, yeah, no, that, they were trying to stay alive. Right. They were trying to stay alive. First, they were trying to win the war against the Spaniards. And then when that became impossible, they were trying to stay alive. Then they were trying to keep their culture alive, writing down all these histories. And thank goodness they did. Um, I have come across, and all the reading I've done over these two decades now, no evidence um, that they thought the world was, was going to end. There was one period in the 1580s when the disease had taken such a toll, generation after generation, that they began to worry a bit. Will, you know, will our population someday disappear? That was as close as they ever came to thinking that the world would end. No yeah. vision of apocalypse, right? Yeah. Well, you, I, I, I mean, I, I noted it down when I read it. Those Aztecs who lived through the war with the Spaniards and then survived the first great epidemic of European diseases found, to their surprise, that the sun continued to rise and set, and that they still had to face the rest of their lives. And I think that that's a perfect note on which to end. A kind of bittersweet note of 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 kind of mingled despair and, and, and survival. So Camilla, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really, really appreciate it. Um, yeah, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much. For listeners, um, Camilla's book is The Fifth Sun, A New History of the Aztecs. Honestly, one of the most fascinating, eye-opening, moving history books I've read. Can't recommend it highly enough. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom... How often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe?